Hi, I'm Calvin Pugh, and this is HIV Connect, a podcast from the International Association of Providers of AIDS Care, or IAPAC, that brings into focus what living with HIV looks like today. In each episode, I connect with clinicians, experts, and community leaders in conversations about clinical and psychosocial management issues, such as aging, stigma, and sexual health topics that matter to people living with HIV. Today, I'm joined by Lydia Joyce. From a compelling nonprofit founder to confident fashionista, Lydia is a modern-day activist that we all need to know. Lydia brings truth and light to the miseducation of HIV and its stigma in the Black community, centering Black women. She's living out loud with an HIV diagnosis while using the power of storytelling and transparency to embolden women, irrespective of status, from all walks of life to do the same. She is a spicy combination of Memphis Faith, Atlanta Flair, and Brooklyn Fire. And Damon Jacobs, who is a New York-based licensed marriage and family therapist and HIV prevention specialist, who focuses work on sexual health, polyamory, and harm reduction. He's the author of two books titled Absolutely Shouldless and Rational Relating. He is best known for championing the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, in the New York Times, ABC News, and more. He was honored to receive a Commissioner Special Recognition Award for his work through the New York State Department of Health in 2016. Sex is an important part of our lives. That means sexual health is an important part of life. The World Health Organization, or WHO, defines sexual health as a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality emphasizing that it is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. The WHO further asserts that sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility for having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences, free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. This episode of HIV Connect will focus on sexual health in relation to HIV. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How do you define sexual health? And in what ways does poor sexual health harm people living with HIV? First part of the question was, what do I define as healthy sex, right? Mm -hmm. I would say healthy sex and healthy sex practices are all things encompassing either you in totality, your mind, body, your heart, your soul. Um, in order to have, to me, a total healthy sexual experience, you have to be somewhere on the healthy spectrum in all those places. Like, is your mind right? You know, are you doing what's necessary to make sure your mind is in a healthy space? Have you moved your body? You know, because you don't want to be out there, you know, throwing in circles and you catch, you know what I'm saying, you throw something out of place because you haven't been moving your body, you haven't been stretching, you haven't been exercising. Um, is your heart healthy? You know, are you in a space to be able to share space with somebody in that, in like that intimate of a connection. And um, so it's your mind, body, your soul, even your spirit, because this is an exchange of energy. So when I think about healthy sex practice or having healthy sex, it's making sure that you're your best self in totality when it comes to where you are on the healthy spectrum in those areas. And also most, you know, most of all, making sure you have had those conversations regarding status, the sex practices of your partner, and um, just making sure that you've had a pleasure-centered conversation about what does pleasure look like, even in that aspect, because healthy sex means everybody gets theirs, right? <laughs> so that's what healthy sex 
and healthy sex practices look for me. And it doesn't differ if you've been diagnosed with HIV. I think you're just a little bit heightened to making sure that you're your best self and that you've had those conversations. But I don't think that changes just because you've been diagnosed with a chronic illness, in my opinion. I love the way you said that. I guess I really appreciate the World Health Organization's emphasis on pleasure and the ability to have pleasure. For me, sexual health is defined by one sense of safety, agency, and discovery. And I can just explain those quickly. Safety fundamentally has to do with the ability to know sexual health. That means perhaps use of PrEP or U equals U or doxycycline or Gyanos or some combination of all of the above or condoms. I can go into each one of those if you'd like. But it's that ability to know that if I share my body and share my bodily fluids with another person, that I'm doing everything I can to reduce the potential consequences of that. But safety also means psychological safety and emotional safety. The idea that you will not use this experience to exploit or harm or embarrass or humiliate me, that I feel safe enough with you, even if you're a total stranger, that I feel safe enough with you to be able to be vulnerable with you, and that you will not physically nor psychologically use this experience to try to harm me. Then agency. Agency is the ability for each one of us to say, if I want sex, if I'm looking for sex with reasonable effort, most of the time, I'll be able to get there. If I put in the effort, if I put in the time, with reasonable effort under most circumstances that I will be able to find a partner or find what I'm looking for. And then discovery is something that I'm learning more and more as I get older, which is the constant evolution of what it means to be a sexual person. The only thing I've ever learned about sex, which was very, very little, by the way, but the only thing I ever really learned about sex had to do with penetrative goal-oriented sex. Mm -hmm. And it's only been in my 40s and 50s that I've learned that there's so much more to the human pleasure than just penetrative sex, where the goal is for someone or both people to have an orgasm, that there's a discovery process in terms of our energies, our bodies, our pleasure, how many areas of our bodies are wired for pleasure. And that, to me, when we put these things together, the safety, the agency, the discovery, that is what is healthy. That is what leads to my experience of sexual health. I think what we see for people living with HIV is that that first part, that foundation of safety is not always there, especially if they're living in a state where they can be put in jail for living with HIV, which, you know, there's 35 states where you can still be put in jail for being HIV positive, And that is exclusively used against black gay men. So if you are living there, your sense of safety might be very, very different because anything you can do might be used against you and has been used against black men. Most notably, I just did an interview with a a person who was criminalized in Louisiana and had to do six months of prison time named Robert Suttle for simply having consensual sex with another adult in which he disclosed his HIV status, but the person turned around and accused him of not disclosing his HIV status. That's the opposite of safety. That's the opposite of agency. I think the first step if we're talking about living with HIV is changing and altering and challenging these archaic criminalization laws that are still on the books today. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because when we talk about agency and safety and like Ladia said, you know, pleasure, but, you know, all this is on the background of being informed and making informed choices, but it's contradictory to be like, well, I've made an informed choice and then there'd be a criminal law against it, right. right? And especially when it targets particularly Black people, whereas, you know, 
other folks may have done the same thing and gotten, you know, off Scott clean. There is a need to change those those criminalization laws. And I mean, let's just face it. Charlie Sheen comes out as living with HIV and he gets awards and accolations and talk show spots. A straight white man living with HIV is praised. A black gay man in the South is criminalized. But what happens to the black woman? Yeah, because you keep saying exclusive. And it was like those laws are not exclusive to black gay men. They're not. But they're enforced. They're not exclusive to black gay men. And I could be wrong, but I've seen them enforced and put in prison against black gay men. And, and please correct me if I'm off about that. I'm going to say ch- check Tennessee. I'm going to say that Tennessee. And I once served as a co-chair for the um, Tennessee HIV Decriminalization Coalition. And there are numerous women, especially in Western Tennessee, who have had those laws enforced on them, who have their children. Yeah, so there are cases, okay. even white women down here in Tennessee who are HIV mm-hmm. positive, have found themselves in the receiving end of the criminalization laws that we have here in Tennessee. So even when you, like, I know living in New York, your perspective may be a little bit different, but if you get down here in the dirty South, any person of color, any person who's been marginalized, those laws impact them, impact them so much more heavily when it comes to white gay men. Thank you. Thank you for letting me know that. And again, really, then thank you. That emphasizes this message that mm-hmm. living with HIV in and of itself Correct. can threaten one's sense of safety, agency, and discovery in certain parts of this country. Thank you, Lydia. You're welcome. So what are some strategies to improve one's sexual health? And How do they apply across the life cycle of human beings from adolescence through older ages? I'll always say that in this life, we're always ING, meaning we're always learning. Because when we get to ED, we're dead. You know what I'm saying? Learning is an evolution. Like what I learned about sex at maybe 12 definitely changes now being 43. So to me... Learning about what sex is, is making sure that you're open and willing to take in new information, to be inquisitive enough to making sure that, hey, let me check in. Whenever you see something new, if you have a question, finding those, asking your doctors, first and foremost, asking your doctors, asking your clinicians, even asking your peers, like, what are y'all doing? And being open and willing to have those conversations because someone in a group is going to be like, that don't sound right. Let me go Google that. Um, And that's what learning about sex means to me because there's things I'm discussing now that I wouldn't even have thought about 20 years ago. But things about sex have changed. We've kind of become more holistic. And like um, Damon said earlier, it's not just, you know, penetrative goal oriented, you know, with sex, as we mature, the, I guess, goal of sex has changed. It's more so like, no, this is an exchange. This is an experience. How can I make this healthy? How can I make this pleasurable? And to me, it's like, as you evolve, as as your taste change, just like we change our clothes, you know, I don't dress the same as I did 20 years ago. Maybe I shouldn't fuck the same either at 43. You know what I'm saying? Because the goals have changed. What I want to do is different, but being open and honest with yourself first to be exploratory and be like, you know, what does this mean? How can, you know, and then having those conversations with your partner or partners. That's what learning and evolving around sex means to me. Beautiful. I'm going to keep this on the eye right now because growing up and coming out during the AIDS crisis was a distinct experience that shaped my sexuality in terms of all exploration and all discovery was in the context of fear. That it was very much mm-hmm. in the context of like, okay, if I have this kind of sex, because I love bottoming, mm-hmm. just going to say it. So if I enjoy this too much, 
I may lose right. track of the fact that the person, like, what if the condom breaks or what if uh, the condom's not used or what if the condom falls off? If I enjoy myself too much, I'm not going to notice that. And if I don't notice that, I could be putting myself at risk of dying. And that really was the case before treatment medications were available when I started having sex in 1989. So it was this idea that sex was always shrouded in this sense of danger, in this sense of, ooh, what if? And I didn't even understand how that impacted sexual development and sexual evolution for me until I began using something called PrEP in 2011. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a daily pill that someone who's HIV negative can take to prevent HIV. It doesn't actually have to be taken daily, but I, that's how I use it. And it wasn't until I started using PrEP and the fear of HIV started to dissipate that I started to realize, whoa, I can have human connection, beautiful human connection, without the fear of acquiring HIV. And what that opens up then in terms of exploration and what that opens up in terms of connecting and playing. So in that vein, you know, sexuality is still really highly stigmatized, uh, including in the medical profession. I'm sure we've all experienced that. What should we be asking and telling our healthcare providers about our sexual health and any icebreakers that you would recommend to start those conversations? Oh, guys, being a Black heterosexual woman in the deep South, the Bible Belt, you can imagine how stigmatizing sex sexuality is. And they all the times eeks. I mean, it's like it's a nasty slow leak over into the medical profession. One thing I can say is as a black woman who's been diagnosed with HIV, when I get in those rooms, I always push back or I say something snarky when they say something. It's like finding the fine line between being an advocate for like other people and like I'm here just for myself. Because what happens is that you get doctors and medical professionals who lead with implicit bias versus scientific advancements, right? So you get doctors who will, you know, come in and use that language with you. They'll use stigmatizing language. They'll use outdated thought processes. They're not up to date. And so as someone who is informed, I don't even have an icebreaker. We just don't get right into it. So like, you know, I have doctors who be like, you know, oh, you were diagnosed with HIV. What risky behaviors, you know, did you engage in? And you just like define risky behaviors, and then, you know, there's this silence in the room. I was like, oh, you mean me engaging and, you know, what's natural when you have a partner that you've been committed to for quite some time? You know, then we go into like sex as a, as a human behavior. You know, there's not a risky behavior. It's a just innate behavior that humans have. So that's just kind of like what I recommend. It's almost like in New York, you know, you see something, you say something. If you hear something, say something to counteract or make them think because a lot of times... Medical professionals in those rooms, first and foremost, they're like, bam, 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 bam. They're not taking a moment. But if I can throw something, not in a bad way, but I throw something back at you to counteract or give you a moment to give you a cause for pause about what you just said to even if nothing else, if you never address it with me, when you walk out that room, you may be a little more apprehensive to using that terminology or phraseology with the next client. And then just being open and honest and free with how you discuss your sexual health with your doctor. You know, when they say something that's stigmatizing, I counteractive and I, you know, shift their perspective, but not letting it go unchecked, especially as a black woman who, when we get inserted in professionals' offices, particularly, you know, OBGYN, and when you think about maternal health and 
things of reproductive justice, when it comes to black women, we can't afford to let those things go unchecked if you have the, the efficacy and the advocacy to do so. So that's my perspective. That's my strategy or icebreak is when you hear something, say something. Be polite about it, but do it in such a way where you make that doctor think about saying that again. When I have the opportunity to speak to doctors about PrEP and U equals U, I say, let's start with the foundation. We're going to start with the premise. Human sexuality is beautiful. Condomless sex is natural. Mm -hmm. Consensual touch is necessary. Can we start with that foundation and then look from there? How we can best serve our communities, our families, our loved ones using science, using evidence-based moments, not your morality, not your dogma, Mm -hmm. not your stigma, but can we use that foundation to use science to help improve health outcomes? And, you know, most of the time, medical providers are at least going to say yes to that in theory. And then, you know, as Lydia said, like they have biases, sometimes they're Mm -hmm. unconscious biases. And when we see them, when we hear them, we say them. You know, one of the things that really gets me is like, if I'm going to a clinic for STI testing and someone says to me, well, how many partners have you had in the last four, eight or 12 weeks? I'm like, what the fuck does that matter? I'm coming to you because I want help, because I need help, because I want to be healthy. I want to make sure I'm not spreading gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis to my partners. What does it matter if I've had one or 99? It doesn't. And they're like, well, we have to collect the data. I'm like, well, that's dogma. That's not data. It doesn't matter. That doesn't help me. It's about you and your numbers. But for a lot of us, that's very stigmatizing language. Now, personally, I don't fucking care because, you know, I'm proud if I've had 99 partners or whatever. But for a lot of people, those are detractions to to actually go to medical services and actually get help because sometimes they're going to be sitting in the room with someone who's going to ask that question in a way that feels stigmatizing. I see doctors... In the last 12 years, I've seen some of them try to change or at least become aware of some of their biases. I prefer for myself to get my care from nurses because nurses are often trained in more holistic, humanistic, holistic ways to see a whole human being and to really use science to help us have the best sex life as possible. But I like to work with providers who work with the framework. How can I support you in feeling good? Mm -hmm. That this is about you. This isn't about me. This is about you. I work within your framework to help you have the best life, the best sex as possible and start from there. I love that. Expanding on that idea, you know, especially working in the HIV and sexual health fields, I find that there's still an incredible amount of sex negative messaging that really further stigmatizes people living with HIV and those populations who are vulnerable to it. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there is so much stigma around sex and sexuality in, in our field and what do you think the answer is? No, that's absolutely true. There is. For me as a therapist, I just come back to hurt people, hurt people, traumatized people, sometimes implicitly, unconsciously project their shit against others. And it's not always malicious, but it is trauma. A lot of the providers who are working in HIV today were there at the beginning and still carry the trauma of, of losing their patients and being helpless to do anything to help them ease their suffering from AIDS as they were dying. And that, in my experience, was so much of the resistance against PrEP at the beginning, where these doctors were like, well, we can't let people have condomless sex because in their synaptic regions, fucking and death were intertwined and they couldn't untwine them. Or some of them are untwining it today, but at least you have to want to 
separate those. It's really hard to uncouple that unless you really intend to do that. And if you're the only one in an agency or in a community that's trying to do that, it might be an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. When you think about why is there so much sex negative messaging that further stigmatizes, I think one, especially in the medical field, we can be so numbers driven. Like we have to get so many numbers, you know, done. We have to get this many tests done. We got to get this many cases closed. And you're numbers driven and you not allow the opportunity to be truly um, holistically, you know, trauma care center or trauma informed care. You're not able to admit that, practice that. And then also with trying to get the numbers, because we know how grants run. You got to get this. You got to have this. You got to do this, 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 that. Has there been a great deconstructing of what we were taught when it comes to sex and sexuality? And because the machine keeps rolling, we've kind of deconstructed in like silos, a little, you know, chunked away at it. But there hasn't been a mass deconstructing of what we learned initially about sex. Because if you think about it, we were not socialized to sex properly at all, especially what we know now and our viewpoints and our perspective and how holistic they are now. It's like a a deconstructing to reconstruct with the knowledge that we have now that hasn't taken place. Maybe that's a huge ask, but by some way we have to make some jumps or leaps and bounds to incorporate and infuse that into our thinking to eradicate the negativity that we have around sex and sexuality. How do we address it? Hell, I don't know. I wish there was a magic wand, one of those things like in um, Men in Black where you can wave and you forget it and we automatically infuse new information because it's like, okay, everybody who works in HIV gather around smile, cheese, now you have this new information. But I do think when we do have the opportunity to address it or infuse that type of information or messaging or counteract those thoughts, we should take the moment to do it. But it's got to kind of hurry up and catch up because we're losing people in the interim waiting for that information to catch up with our, you know, our thought process that we had from the past. Talking about how far we've come, what do you all feel that the impact of U equals U has had on sexual health, notably, uh, you know, among zero discordant couples? I absolutely think it's been a major shift. I think it has changed people's thinking in the medical profession. It certainly changed consumer thinking. It's a, been a little slow, but I also realize that those of us that work in this field every day sometimes can acclimate to ideas because we're exposed to them. It is about patience, but it's the flip side to prep. So we have prep, we have U equals U. It's like peanut butter and jelly. You put them together and it's a gorgeous, wonderful, tasty, moist thing. Um, Separately, they're okay, but they're better together. Prep and U equals U. And it really encourages these doctors to say, let's prioritize data over dogma, science over stigma, evidence over emotions, medicine over morality. That's what the U equals U message has been doing and pushing and pushing for and has made great gains with the CDC and some of the higher echelons of these medical boards worldwide. I see it happening that people's minds are changing, but I see it happening slowly. And I still see that unconscious bias in the U.S. And if you think it's slow from what you see, child, imagine black and brown communities. You know what I'm saying? So when I think about you equals you, although it's great, the rollout was beautiful. You know, even when you think about the most vulnerable populations that, you know, are black and brown communities and bodies. If that's slow, baby, we even, we still on the tarmac, you know what I'm saying? Because even when you go in, you have doctors, especially in some of these Southern cities that see both black, brown and white people 
they're less apprehensive with their white clientele or their white patients than they are with black and brown because again that's that explicit bias like you know black folks and brown folks out here fucking recklessly like no we all fuck the same <laughs> but that's you know it's like one of those things it's like no one group of people has sex more often so why is that same application of knowledge not across the board and because you have that you know medical professional or clinician pushback the slow rollout the marketing did not hit black and brown communities like it did the lgbtqia plus community especially the white part of that community it did not roll out to us so we're in 2023 and i can talk about having condom and sex with my partner and people are like dead ass like what who you do he ain't you mean Child, yes. How you think it's little brown and black babies who has a mother or father that's HIV positive and they don't have HIV? Like, it doesn't compute. And I think because we were missed out of that marketing, that messaging, like we're so often are. And because of that, I don't think it's had an impact for better or for worse. It just kind of is. And it's those of us who find ourselves in several discordant, you know, relationships that have to do the heavy lifting. You know, because we still go into a doctor's office and I've had my doctor ask, why would he want to get on prep? Uh, Duh, you know, it's those conversations. So I think the heavy lifting for us in these communities that we have to be both patient and advocate. And sometimes we just want to be patient. So that's why I would say, you know, with the impact of you equals you in our communities, it leaves a lot to be determined or said because I haven't seen it. And maybe I'm wrong, but I haven't seen it. So to be determined. Yes, TBD. <laughs> so where does reproductive health fit into the, our conversations about sexual health? It's a both and. And we've done so great of a job to separate the two, to make it almost be mystical. It's like, no, we need to marry the two back because if we talk about stigma, if we talk about having conversation in communities who don't understand at all, how better of a conversation would it be that when you go get, you know, your annual or your physical at your exam as a man or your annual as a woman, that these things are included. You know, we're going to do a full panel in addition to your pap smear to where it's not something that you have to elect into. It just is what it is. So when I see this, I'm just like, yes, this is what needs to happen to normalize the conversation, especially around HIV. If I knew I was getting tested for HIV every year when I got a mammogram in the annual, it wouldn't be so off-putting for me to have to check that box to opt in. I just know I'm aware of my status. It just flattens the playing field and lowers the barriers of the introduction of those conversations with our medical providers, with the, our partners, and with ourselves. So it, it don't, it's not even a fit in. They're the same thing, if you ask me. If not before, it is clear to me now how together we are because they're coming after reproductive rights in every state. Mm -hmm. They're coming after reproductive rights federally. They want to stop women from being able to get abortion pills in the mail. They want to control your mail. They want to control telehealth. They want to be able to control what you do or how you access your own health in other states. And if they get their way with that, which they are leading on, you better bet that the sluts are next. And when I say sluts, it's a very affectionate term. But, you know, they, they're seeing what they can get away with with reproductive rights. It'll take less than half a second to do the same thing with PrEP. They're going to come after us for next. I have no doubt about that. They don't want us to use PrEP. You know, they don't want gay men to be empowered and, and to be sexually liberated and have fun and pleasurable anal sex without consequence. 
They're going to come after PrEP next. So we all need to stand together and protect these rights to access health care, mm-hmm. to access telehealth, to receive the mail in any way that makes sense, that's evidence-based, that's science-driven, harm reduction-centered. We have the right to do that. But they're trying to roll back everything. It's not just reproductive rights. They're going to come after PrEP next. We talked about it in Tennessee. The HIV organizations got caught. And we told them, like, y'all, we're talking about reproductive health and rights. HIV is going to get caught. Us. No. We, and we told, you know, reproductive like it is. And the minute what happens, that bill passed and all HIV nonprofit organizations that do anything with testing, prevention, and education, their funding stops May 31st here in Tennessee. They got caught under the bill. And it's just like, y'all, we told you, like, you can't separate HIV from your reproductive justice. You can't. The one and the same, and you're saying they're start, they have, and and it's that it's like, oh, we're not talking about HIV. Read the fine print. Read the fine print, and it's there. First is like abortion pills, and you know, the next is you know access to getting tested, and then next is going to be you know having you know prep and pep, and then next is going to be medications. It's just like y'all just want us to die. Like y'all really just want us to die. Mm-hmm. You know, walking away from some of the stigma and the things that we've talked about so far, let's talk about a current talk about sexual health, which is what is the role of boundaries, self-respect and mutual respect in sexual health? And how do those boundaries and consent and mutual respect factor into curbing coercion and violence? I think it curbs coercion. But when it comes to violence, it's a slippery slope in my perspective. Only because seeing yourself, and you know, my perspective, black heterosexual woman, and when it comes to intimate partner violence, that could be a lot of times with our, you know, rape, inner partner violence, sexual assault, more often than not, it happens with folks that you know. And you don't always see the signs. I would say the role of boundaries, self-respect, and mutual respect is paramount in sexual health because in order again going back to the first question you asked how do you have healthy sex and healthy sex practices having your boundaries talking about the boundaries you got to have respect first and foremost for yourself to even identify what those boundaries are and being able to articulate that in such a way that where your partner or partners are able to receive it and they're not shying away from the conversation and standing 10 toes down to whatever the boundaries are and what you require to have a healthy sexual experience. Mutual respect is you giving yourself, your partner the same space to vocalize those same things, their boundaries, their nose, you know, what's the safe word, what's, you know, what's too far, but being able to create an atmosphere where you can have an exchange of that information mutually and then respecting each other, like saying, hey, we don't agree let's not do this because we don't see eye to eye. And that goes into like self-respect and the mutual respect part of this. I'm not going to be mad at you. Thank you for not wasting my time. I enjoyed this exchange of energy for whatever it was, but having sex ain't it, bruh, right? <laughs> or or ma'am. But you know, it, that's not where we are. When it comes to curbing coercion, I would just, I would say that having that self-respect and understanding, identifying what your boundaries are can lessen you being able to find yourself in those positions to be coerced, right? But when when it comes to violence, I don't know. I mean, does it curb it? Maybe. You know what I'm saying? Because it's some some foolish people who, once they get in those situations, they're just dead set on getting whatever it is that they want. 
But when I think about the flip side, that if you are able to have those conversations early on, that they may see that, you know, if you're 10 toes down on what your boundaries are, your respect, you know, you're like, this is the level I'm not coming up off of it. When they see that, they'll probably be less likely to even exercise any act of violence in an intimate partner, you know, one of those intimate settings. Um, but that I go back and forth on that violence piece only because, shit, you know, it's just, you know, having, you know, been a victim of rape, you know, it's just like what I'm saying. You're like, yeah, like I've, ha- you know what I'm saying? You know, you have your boundaries, you have your self-respect, and then some things you just can't find yourself out of, right? So, yeah, that's how they all play a role in sexual health. I would say in the 26 years I've been working as a therapist, a lot of things have changed in the world, a lot of things for the better, but gay men's self-esteem being dictated by another person's cock has not changed. And that a lot of gay men perceive themselves as based on what kind of validation or attention they're getting from other men. And that is a boundary issue. I think that's a self-respect issue that I work to change so that someone knows who they are they know their light. They know their beauty. They know their worth. They know their value independent of whether they're getting fucked or not, or whether they're getting attention or approval or not. And that's how I see those things from a mental health standpoint. You know, again, I love prep. I love you equals you. I love doxycycline. We haven't talked about that yet, but these are all the ways that we can fuck without condoms and minimize any potential unwanted consequences from happening. And yet we still aren't talking about the internal, about the mind, about using the mind to engage in sexual pleasure, which means that the boundaries are, I know who I am first. I have a relationship with God. That's my relationship with God. And when I go into a sex club or I go into a sexual situation, I know that that relationship is going to be there, whether I get fucked or not. That means that relationship is there. I know who I am, whether I get attention or approval or not. And that to me is a sense of boundaries that maintains sexual health, mental health, spiritual health on a regular basis. And then so I think violence is very separate from that mm-hmm. because it's not completely separate. But I also want to be really I want to it's, it's a slippery slope. I don't want to get into blaming the victim. However, I do think when we know who we are and we communicate who we are and we have a very, very firm, clear no and we can say no clearly and knowing who we are as connected to God or whatever higher power anybody chooses to have. Or we just basically know that we're amazing people, even if we say no to sex, mm-hmm. we can say no so much clearer. And that might filter and reduce mm-hmm. some potential for violence, but not all. As a lot of violence has nothing to do with how you feel right. about yourself, has nothing to do with your sense of self-respect or boundaries. And so I want to be clear on that as well. But I do think the mindset, the mental health, that is something that I wish we talked more about. And it's hard to do that when we're just trying to get doctors to just like practice basic <laughs> science. Right. Yeah, that part. So is there any other advice or thoughts about advancing a sex-positive approach to ending the HIV epidemic that either of you have? I always say that we have to remove morality from sex. If we could remove the morality of it and the messaging and how we have the conversations and just look at sex as a natural habit or a natural function that consenting people have with each other, and use that approach or use it as a backdrop of all the messaging, marketing, everything that we put out 
education and prevention wise, I think we'd be in a much better place to normalize in the conversation then about HIV. And then within that conversation, making people more aware, giving the, you know, the information to be more educated, how to navigate, you know, preventing from HIV, you know, contraction and transmissions, then we'll see a total, you know, like that. I always like this 360 man. I do this because it's like the man as a whole, man, woman as a whole, we'll see them being better acclimated, better able to have the conversation, better able to nuance this whole HIV thing, either as someone who's positive or negative and endly reducing the number of transmissions that we have because we can, you know, in this in our lifetime, hell, it started within our lifetime, which means it can end in our lifetime. But until we just flatten or just remove this whole thing about sex is bad, you shouldn't have sex and you should only have sex within these perimeters. And this is what sex looks like. If we can remove that, that damning of sex, how it is now, you'll see a more leaned in holistic approach from communities to be receptive because right now we ain't receptive sometimes to hear the messaging because it's like, no, I'm going to fuck regardless of what it is and I'm going to deal with the consequences later. But if we do that, you'll see a more leaned in position from communities who are very vulnerable to this HIV epidemic and thus will reduce the number of transmissions that we have. That's my thought and that's my advice when it comes to marketing and messaging. Like, let's do that. See what happens. That was fire. Yeah. So I use PrEP. Now, PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. That's the medical term. But for me, and what I encourage people to think about in their lives is P-R-E-P. What does it mean to be proactive, responsible, and empowered about our pleasure? Proactive, responsible, empowered pleasure. So PrEP is proactive because we think about it ahead of time, right? So if someone's using PrEP or U equals U or doxycycline or whatever it is they're using to have sex, it could be anything, it could be condoms, but to be proactive about how can I experience pleasure? How do I enjoy this? It can be doing the mental health work that I mentioned earlier to center and meditate first to say, no matter what happens today, tonight, whether I have sex or not, I know who I am. I know my light. How are we proactive with our sex lives? Responsible. When I take prep for myself, I take it not only just for me, but I also know that I'm not accidentally transmitting HIV to another person without realizing it. When I take doxycycline for myself, I do it for myself, but I also do it to make sure I'm not transmitting gonorrhea, syphilis, or chlamydia to my partners. These are the ways that I take responsibility for my sexual health, which then extends to my sexual partners. And then E, empowerment. What does it mean to you to be empowered in your life? Maybe that's abstinence. Maybe it's monogamy. Maybe it's having a stash of abortion pills in your medicine cabinet just in case. Maybe it's prep. But whatever it is, how do we feel empowered and centered in our sexual health? And then the P, pleasure. I say that and I always include pleasure because that was left out of the conversation. And most every conversation, if people even talk about sexual health in this country, pleasure is almost always extracted out of that conversation. So proactive, responsible, empowered pleasure. Let's think about pleasure as, as something, I mean, people play golf for pleasure. I don't understand why they do, but they do. Why? Because they find it pleasurable. And so is tennis. So is hot air balloons. All of these things carry some type of risk and all of these things carry a lot of pleasure. But I ask people at all ages, what does it mean for you to feel proactive, 
responsible, and empowered about your pleasure. And then if I am your provider or your friend or your loved one, how can I support you in feeling good? How can I support you in having the maximal pleasure with the minimal risk? I have to agree with both of you. I want to thank my guests, Damon and Ladia for joining me on this really thought-provoking conversation about what it means to have sex and have pleasure under the important issue of being informed about the way that we like to engage in this aspect of our lives. HIV Connect is made possible through educational grants from Gilead Sciences and Merkin Company, which has no influence over the podcast series topics, content, or speaker selection. To learn more about today's topics and other subjects, visit AIDSinfoNet at www.iapac.org backslash support backslash AIDS-infonet or click the link in the show notes. As IAPAC's Senior Advisor on Community Engagement, I want to hear from you. You can email me at kpugh at iapac.org. You can also find out more about today's guests in our show notes. Until next time, please be kind and take care of yourself and each other.